Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Matthew chapter 4. Dan Trotter, pretty good Bible studies. We're going to do the first. We're going to do the temptation of Jesus here. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, remember, he was already in the wilderness near the Jordan River, right east or maybe south of Jerusalem, but now he went back up into the plateau there where it was wild and hilly and sandy and rocky and nasty. That's why he was led up, because he's climbing back up into the wilderness. Now notice he was led by the Holy Spirit. He didn't just wander into the wilderness. The devil didn't force him into the wilderness. God, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, actually, led him into the wilderness. Why would he do that? In order to be tempted. To be tempted. So God had a purpose. The Holy Spirit had a purpose to tempt the Son of God. Why? Because in order to be in order for him to qualify as our high priest tempted in all things, he had to be tempted. And this was part of his preparation for ministry. Well, let's talk about this word tempted. Now, I know that in English and in Greek and in Chinese, in three languages, the word is utterly ambiguous. It, well, it has two possibilities. One possibility is to be seduced. For example, the naked woman in the Playboy tempted the hormone-ridden teenager into sexual sin. That's tempted to be seduced into evil. There's another kind of tempting. That's when you try somebody and you test somebody. For example, the algebra teacher tested the child to see if he knew algebra. Now, the testing can be with a purpose to uh, to, to prove in a positive sense that the person will pass the test, as in the case of the algebra teacher, or it can be used in the sense of, I'm going to test you in order to destroy you, provoke you, to aggravate you. Okay, well, in the sense of seduce, nobody can tempt God. Okay, Jesus couldn't be tempted that way. But in order to uh, ask the person being tempted to prove himself, and thereby provoking the person asked to be proven. That's the sense that this word here, tempted, is being used. Jesus is being tested. Prove that you are being, that you are the Son of God. All right, now this testing was just like Israel was being tested. Jesus is the new Moses. The old Moses, who was head of the old Israel, he was tested for 40 years. Jesus was tested for 40 days. I do not believe these numbers are coincidental. I believe they're typological. And I know that theology is moving that way, uh, away from systematic theology to biblical theology, where you look at the redemptive historical progress of things and you start seeing types. I am not a typological maximalist that sees types under every bush. However, when it's pretty obvious... I think that uh, there's a reason why there are these parallels between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's how they, the, the types tie the two covenants together. So we see Israel being tested, but the Israelites generally fail their test. But Jesus, head of the new Israel, the new lawgiver, he passed his test. And just like Adam was tested, Jesus was tested. There's another parallel. The old Adam failed his test. He wasn't supposed to eat the fruit in the tree, but he did. But the new Adam did not fail his test, as we will see in this chapter. Now, as I said earlier, Jesus' temptation helped him to identify with us as our high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 through 16 say this, says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And as we look at these three temptations, we'll see that Jesus was tempted for, because he had no food. 
That was the first temptation. The second temptation, he was tempted because he had no power, safety, security. Or excuse me, no safety, no security. And the third temptation was because he had no power. So his temptation covered the whole possibilities, all of the possibilities. And so his temptation has become a great model for Christians. When we're tempted, to remember, hey, Jesus was tempted and he beat the temptations. We identify with Jesus and we can beat the temptations too. And, of course, we're often tempted to evil by Satan, just like Jesus was. Now, notice that the temptation immediately follows the public preparation of Jesus for ministry. Jesus had just been baptized in water by John the Baptist, last chapter. He had just been baptized in the Holy Spirit. He's ready to go, except for one thing. He hasn't been tested yet. Now, the reason that the devil came to test him so eagerly was he realized he had a problem on his hands. We've got the Messiah. He's equipped by the Holy Spirit, baptized in the Holy Spirit, getting ready to begin the destruction of his kingdom. And Satan wasn't going to put up with that without a fight. Now, let's talk about the million-dollar theological question. Was it possible for Jesus to have yielded to the temptation of Satan? Now, this is a theological ch chestnut it's, it's because it's so difficult. I remember hearing a preacher one time saying, oh, he had the answer. It was easy. Of course Jesus could have been tempted. Well, I thought to myself, I don't know the answer to this thorny problem, but I think you're pretty cocky about it. Well, after years and years and years of contemplation, I finally have listened to a podcast just recently, which has made up the uh, issue in my mind. So let's see what the issue is. First of all, if you say that he could have been tempted to his temptation and and arguing for that fact from the fa from the uh, the fact that Jesus was a man and men are subject to temptation. And Adam was a man, he was subject to temptation. Jesus was a man, he was subject to temptation. So therefore, in order for the temptation to be real, he had to have been able to be t to fall to that temptation. The NIV study Bible seems to say this. Uh, my note says that Jesus' temptation was real, not merely symbolic. He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. He was confronted by the tempter with a real opportunity to sin. Oh, so there's a problem here, NIV study Bible. What would have happened to his divine nature if he had sinned? Does, God, does Jesus, the Son of God, go to hell? What happens to Jesus' plan for the redemptive, his redemptive plan, God's redemptive plan for the human race? Does it fail and you and I go to hell too? And notice that this view leads to Nestorianism. We got the divine Son of God can't fall to sin, but the human Son of God, he can fall to temptation. So now we have two different natures of Christ acting independently in the Council of Chalcedon in 451 said, that's a no-no. That was denounced as heresy, which it is. So I think that this preacher guy was listening to in the NIV study Bible got a lot of explaining to do. Okay, so let's assume that it was not possible for Jesus to have fallen because we say it is absurd to say that God could have sinned. And I agree, it's absurd to say that. But then we have another problem. How then was the temptation real? Well, that bothered me for a long time, but I heard this one example on a podcast just recently the Reformed Brotherhood, I'll give them a shout-out for this one. And one of the uh, podcasters gave this great example. He said, suppose you haven't eaten in two weeks. I might have changed the facts a little bit, but the example was essentially like this. Suppose one has not eaten in two weeks and is tied up in a pizza restaurant. You're starving to death. You got your hands tied to the chair, to a post. 
The waiter comes by and puts the pizza right in front of your nose. You can't eat it, but were you nevertheless tempted? You bet you were tempted, but there's not a thing you could do about falling to evil. And I think there's your answer right there. So Jesus was tempted. He felt it, but there was no way in God's eternal plan that the Son of God was going to jump off the throne and go to hell and that we are not going to, we who have been predestined before the foundations of the world are going to go to hell too. There's no way that could have happened. All right, so anyway, this temptation begins the prophesied combat between the devil and the seed of the woman. This is the famous Proto-Evangelion verse, Evangelion verse in Genesis 3.15, where God says this to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, enmity between you, devil, and the woman, Eve, and between your seed, um, that would be the children of the devil, followers of the devil, and her seed, that would be Jesus, and of course Jesus' followers. He shall bruise you on the head. The devil, the, the, the seed of the woman, Christ, will bruise you, devil, on the head. And when you bruise somebody on the head, that means you destroy them, you kill them. And you, devil, shall bruise him, the seed of the woman, Jesus. You shall bruise Jesus on the heel. In other words, you're going to hurt him a little bit. On the heel, that's not a fatal injury. And what he's talking about there is dying on the cross, which is, you know, that's a pretty bad injury if you look at it. But relatively speaking, because he rose again from the dead, the devil didn't really beat Jesus. He, he wounded him, but he didn't beat him. All right, so there's a huge cosmic conflict going on now between the devil and and the Son of God, and happened right there in that wilderness. Now, in the wilderness, Jesus overcame three temptations. And if he had yielded to any of these three temptations, he would have, he would have lost his messianic ministry. The first temptation was using supernatural power to fulfill his own needs, to destroy his hunger and thirst. Then he would not have been a man who was tempted in hunger and thirst and, and overcame that temptation, and therefore he could not be our high priest who identifies us in our hunger, when we hunger and when we thirst. The second temptation that Jesus had to overcome was the need for safety and security, where the devil asked him to jump off the temple and he wouldn't strike his foot against a stone. This temptation was also a temptation to win a large following by magic or miracles, so he could have been a big shot, powerful. Third temptation was he could have compromised with Satan in order to get power to rule all the nations of the world. So all of these temptations, and we'll look at them one by one, are examples of what we're tempted by and how we can overcome these temptations even as our high priest Jesus did. Now, it's interesting when we talk about the, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness in order to be tempted the parallel passage in Mark 1.12 says this, Immediately the Spirit impelled him to go into the wilderness, NASB translation, or to drive him into the wilderness. So uh, uh, this, this was a, an, an imperative thing. The Holy Spirit was really, really, really wanting Jesus to be tempted for Jesus' sake and for our sake. All right, and he was tempted by the devil. And just for review here, uh, the devil means a slanderer, and Satan means adversary. The adversary slanders us, tells lies about us, tells us who, tells us things that are not true about us. 
Okay, so now let's go to chap- uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 2. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. Now, this length of time is probably purposeful to show the connection between other trials that happened in the wilderness. I've mentioned this already. Moses twice uh, went up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. Exodus 24:18. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, Mount Sinai. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And, of course, there he was tempted and tried because while he was down there, the Israelites uh, made a golden calf and started dancing and partying in an idolatrous feast. So he had to break the stone tablets. went back up there to get some replacements of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 34, verse 28. So he was there again on Mount Sinai with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He did not eat bread or drink water. Oh, he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, not eating or drinking, drink, eating water or eating bread or drinking water in the wilderness, just like Jesus did. So you see, this cannot be coincidental. This was all in the province of God to provide, provide us types and, and, and examples uh, to show that Jesus is now the new Moses. Of course, Moses was worshipped almost. He was, uh, I cannot tell you the high esteem that Moses was held by, uh, by the Jews, but Jesus is saying, no, somebody greater than Moses is here. It's me, it's Jesus. Uh, we see some other uh, parallels from the Old Testament. Elijah, for example, was also up on the Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. 1 Kings 19.8 So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to horror of the mountain of God. It doesn't say that he was tired from, the, he was running from Jezebel. He was tired. He arose and ate and drank, drank because he was tired of that flight from Jezebel, and then he went in the strength of that food. It sounds like he didn't eat again while he was on Mount Sinai, but doesn't explicitly say it. But he is up on Mount Sinai being tested in the wilderness, running from Jezebel. It was a testing of 40 days and 40 nights. And then we have uh, Israel uh, itself. Uh, tested for 40 years in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 8.2, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you, there's the test, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So you see this testing for a, a cycle of 40 is a common pattern in the scriptures, and Jesus is fulfilling that, that pattern. Now, he didn't eat, Jesus didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights. I have heard this, I think, on pretty good authority, that once you reach day 41, your body starts consuming itself, and you start starving to death, and your body just eats itself up. Jesus was at the limit of his human endurance. I can't imagine going 40 days. I, I, I went one day for three days without eating, and I, I, it was a miracle I'm here today. It almost killed me. But to go 40 days, that's just beyond belief. But anyway, this idea of fasting when you're, in, when you're being tempted is probably a good example for us. When t- things are tough, time to fast. Again, there's no command to fast in the New Testament. Jesus' disciples themselves did not uh, fast, as, as you know. But uh, there's too much testimony of fasting uh, that to, help, to help you get concentrated spiritually when things are tough. I think it's a good idea. I wouldn't make a scriptural command of it. I just think it is a good idea. Now, he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. This is probably to show a full 24 hours was meant because a common way that Jews fasted was to fast during the day and to eat at night, like the Muslims do during Ramadan. I I don't consider that a fast, really. That's just flipping the clock. (laughs) You eat all night long, party, gorge yourself, and then starve during the day. 
But anyway, this was no. This was an this was an honest to goodness fast. No eating for forty days and forty nights. Now he be, says he became hungry, and the devil attacked him at the end of the forty days. So an, an interesting question arises: What about the earlier forty days? Now it turns out that the other gospels parallel passages show that Satan had been tempting him before he used the famous three temptations during those forty days. Mark chapter 1 verse 13 says this, and he, God, Jesus, was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So he was already being tempted in some un, unstated ways for 40 days before the devil ever got to him. And they said, you need to turn the stones into bread. And, and in Luke chapter 4 verse 2, for 40 days being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those days. And when they ended, he became hungry or he was hungry. Satan had been working on him for 40 days before he even got to day 40. This is something we often don't think about, how horrible this was for Jesus to be without food for 40 days and the devil saying, well, I don't know what he was doing, but he'd be saying, oh, you know, God, where's God? thought God took care of his son. And here you are, the son of God, the Messiah, starving to death. What kind of a God are you anyway? Satan's purpose was probably to get Jesus to doubt he was the Son of God and the Messiah, according to Jim, uh, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. I think that's probably true. We don't know what temptations the devil used for those 40 days, but we know that it must have been very, very bad for Jesus. Because not only was he hungry, in Mark, in this, in that same parallel passage in Mark 1, verse 13, it says, Jesus was with the wild beast, and the angels were ministering to him. So he had help. He had supernatural help with angels ministering to him. And we need to remember that, too, when we're tempted. We've got supernatural help. God sent us angels to minister to us, just like he did to Jesus. He was with the wild beast in the wilderness. Wild beast can rip you to shreds. So he had the terrors of night as well as being hungry. Let's go to verse 3 in Matthew 4. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now there's a question here. Could it be that Satan was questioning whether Jesus was actually the Son of God? He didn't know. Now, Adam Clark suggests that this is true. He says it is certain whatever Satan might suspect, he did not fully know that the person he tempted was the true Messiah. Perhaps one grand object of, it is, of his temptation was to find this out. I doubt that seriously. The NIV, I agree with the NIV Study Bible, which says that Satan is not questioning Jesus being the Son of God. He's trying to get Jesus to use his status as such to do improper things. He's assuming that Jesus is the Son of God, and uh, he's also assuming that the assumption, uh, he's, he's not just assuming it for the sake of argument, he actually believes that it's actually true, legitimately true, and he's saying, all right, well, since this is true, make these stones become bread. I know that grammatically in Greek you cannot take a, in a clause in, in, this, in this situation and turn if into since. And you look at all the English translations, they don't say since. However, you can, not from the Greek or from the grammar, but you can imply just from the context or just from logic, I guess, or, or supposition, that Satan really does believe that, that Jesus is the Messiah. And he's saying, okay, I know you're the Messiah. You know you're the Messiah. You know that you're hungry. Command those stones to turn to bread because you're the Son of God and you can do it. I know you can do it. So the point, I think, is not whether Satan's trying to figure out whether Jesus is the Son of God or not. He's trying, rather, to make Jesus take his Messiahship and pervert it and thus come under his sway and disobey God. 
Gill has an interesting speculation, John Gill. He speculates that during the previous 40 days of the temptations, Jesus' temptations were internal and Satan was invisible. But having failed in those temptations, the devil now, at the end of the 40 days, takes it up a notch and appears visibly. That's interesting speculation. I have no idea whether it's true or not. Why would it not have been proper for Jesus to turn those stones into bread? He was hungry. He needed to eat. What's wrong with eating? What's wrong with uh, doing what's necessary to feed yourself? Well, the reason is, is there was nothing wrong for him to do that in the abstract, but doing it at the devil's behest and the, at the devil's request, that's a no-no. Jesus would be implicitly denying that his Father in heaven could not take care of him and that he needed the devil to tell him what to do. He's not going to do what the devil tells him to do. Let's go to Matthew 4, verse 4. But he answered and said, Jesus answered the devil and said, It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You notice how Jesus uses the scripture to ask, answer the devil. That's a great example for us. We Christians should use should know the word of God so well that even if you haven't got a Bible and you're out in the desert for 40 days, you haven't eaten, that you can still quote it right out of your heart, out of your memory. Quote it right at the devil. This is a quote from Deuteronomy 8, 3. He humbled you, talking to the Israelites, referring to God. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So, uh, just as in the wilderness, the Israelites had something to eat when they needed it. Jesus is now in the wilderness, and... He's going to have what he needs to eat when he needs it. It's not going to be bread. It's going to be the word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He's going to live on the word of God. He's not going to live on the natural, the bread. He's going to live on the word of God. Now, the interesting thing is he says, alone, I do not live on bread alone. There's nothing wrong with bread. Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't pray for your bread. What does it say in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. That's not the problem. The problem is when you focus on the natural to the exclusion of the spiritual. And then it becomes idolatry. It's like so many things in life. Nothing wrong with gold, but you turn gold into an idol. And uh, you become an idolater. Same thing with food. Nothing wrong with food, but if you turn it, become a glutton, or if you rely on illicit means to get it, like listening to the devil, well, then it becomes an evil thing. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. This is the second temptation coming up. Then the devil took him into the holy city, that's Jerusalem, had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up. On their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Now, the devil was quoting scripture here. The devil loves to quote scripture, to twist it, to take it out of context, to pervert its intent. He was quoting Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. Now, how did the devil pervert that scripture? Well, the scripture was meant, Psalm 91 was meant for people who were about to have an accident to guard you in all your ways so that you don't strike your foot against a stone. It's not talking about people who are deliberately going up to a stone and kicking it as hard as they can and saying, Gee, God, please keep my foot from being hurt as I kick this stone. If Jesus had thrown himself off the temple, 
Well, he would deliberately being uh, hurting himself. He would not be having an accident, uh, and he would be asking God to protect him from his own stupidity. That is not what Psalm 91 meant. So that's how the devil perverted the verse. Now let's look at some options as to how the devil took Jesus on that pinnacle. I've often I've often thought about this. It seems kind of strange to me. Uh, one option is is that the devil took Jesus up in a vision. I used to think that, um, but there's a problem with that. How does someone throw yourself down on the ground in a vision? The devil says, okay, you're standing up here in a vision, looking down at the ground. I want you to throw yourself down and hit the ground. I don't know how you do that. Now, the other option is that the devil actually took Jesus up there. Now, the one way he could have actually taken Jesus up there is he picked him up bodily and threw him through the air. Well, I always thought that sounded a little crazy because, for one thing, everybody in the world would have seen it. It would have been an awe-inspiring event. I don't believe that happened. That's why I've always taken it to be in a vision because I just didn't think it could happen that the devil would take Jesus bodily up and put him on the temple. John Gill believes this, by the way. However... Maybe the devil walked him up to the top. You say, well, how can the devil get Jesus to the top of the temple somewhere? Well, if you recall, James the Just, the brother of Jesus, was thrown off the pinnacle of the temple or a pinnacle of the temple somewhere. He was thrown. So the, the Jews who killed him got him up there somehow. So it was possible to get up on the top of the temple. It could have been the devil just walked Jesus through the crowd right up to the top of the temple there. And nobody noticed he was up there being tempted to jump. I tend to think that's the answer. All right, why is, this is a small point, why is Jerusalem called the Holy City? I like this because in, in my state of South Carolina, we have a city down there on the coast called Charleston, and everybody down there calls it the Holy City, and I think they really believe it. I don't think the term is quite as ironic as, the, as people think it is. It's holy because the temple, Jerusalem was holy because the temple and its services were there in Jerusalem. The angels are said in verse 6, that the angels will bear you up, will bear you up. That phrase is taken from, taken from a nurse's management of a child. In teaching a child to walk, she guides it along playing ground, but then lifts it up and carries it over obstacles. At any rate, it was not meant to deliver people from accidents. It was to, to deliver people, excuse me, the verse was not meant to uh, say that God would deliver you from your own stupidity, putting yourself in danger. Chapter 7 in Matthew 4, Jesus said to him, Jesus said to the devil, On the other hand, devil, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So we have a scripture quoting contest here, the devil against Jesus. Jesus quotes his scriptures in context. The devil quotes his out of context. Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6.16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. There were two places where the Israelites didn't get water and tested God. They got angry. Where is our water? You said you, you took us out of Egypt. We were slaves in Egypt, but we'd be better off being slaves in Egypt than to be out here in this wilderness without any water. One was Meribah, one was Massa. Massa was the second one, if I remember correctly, where Moses struck the rock in anger or for whatever reason was not allowed to go into the promised land. He tested. Now there, God told the Israelites, don't test me. Don't try to see whether I'm God or not. Don't try to make me prove myself to you. I am God. You need to trust me. You don't need to test me. And if Jesus threw himself off that temple, he would be testing God. He would say, God, 
I, I, I want to see if you can deliver me. I want to see if you're God, if you're really a sovereign, powerful God, and you can deliver me from falling off this temple. That would be putting the Lord to the test. It would be neglecting ordinary means of safety to put oneself in harm's way, which is exactly the way the devil was trying to get Jesus to quote, to, to interpret Psalms 91.1. All right, that is stupidity and tempting God shouldn't be done. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 through 9. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain. This is the third temptation. And showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, again, the question is, how did the devil take Jesus to do this? Did he physically take him to a high mountain in the wilderness down there? Or did he take him in, a, in, a, in the spirit? Adam Clark says this, it must be a spiritual vision. How could Jesus physically see all the kingdoms of the world? Well, that's well, that's true. But world does not necessarily have to mean all the kingdoms on the globe. It could have been in the land of Judea. We'll talk about that in a minute. If it means all the land of the Judea, yeah, Jesus, the devil could have walked Jesus up on top of a mountain down there in the wilderness. He could have looked around and seen the various regions of Judea. Now, a parallel passage in Luke chapter 4, verse 5 says that Jesus saw all the kingdoms in a moment of time. Luke 4, 5 says this, And he led him up, the devil led him up, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, like a spiritual flash. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, In a moment of time, which manifestly is intended to intimate some supernatural operation, that it was permitted to the tempter to extend preternaturally for a moment our Lord's range of vision and throw a glory or glitter over the scene of vision. All makes it sound very supernatural if it's referring to all the world. Or it could be that Jesus was on a mountain somewhere and, and Satan created a, a false delusion in Jesus' mind, just created a, a false vision, if you will. That's John Gill's idea. In my, uh, uh, Let's go on before we, uh, we try to solve the problem of uh, where Jesus went and how he went. Let's look at this idea of world. What does it mean to see the world in all of his glory? Here are some options, like the famous commentator Lightfoot says it's all the Roman world. John Gill says it's the whole world. Adam Clark says it's the land of Judea. So we have a lot of split of opinion on this. This is what Clark says. Probably St. Matthew in the Hebrew original. Now Clark is assuming that Matthew wrote in uh, Hebrew originally, and that's controverted. In fact, I don't believe it really, but some people, but Clark believes it. Probably St. Matthew in the Hebrew original wrote, Aretz, Aretz, which signifies the world, the earth, and often the land of Judea only. It's like the Greek word gay can mean world or it can be land, the land of Israel. Well, if it's the land of Israel, and that's, that's a perfectly reasonable translation as Adam Clark shows, at that time he could have been referring to the three subdivisions of Judea, which were ruled by the three sons of Herod the Great, Archelaus and Samaria and Judea, Antipas up in Galilee and Perea, and Philip, I forgot the name of his... Uh, Tetrarchy, uh, to the east there, Herod Philip. So there are these three divisions that Jesus was shown. Now this makes sense to me. I, I tend to see this because it, it would be very easy for the devil to lead Jesus up to a mountain. I mean, he could have shown him in a vision too, but he, is, it, he could. the devil could have led Jesus up to the top of a mountain. And since he's the Messiah, he's going to be the the king of Israel. That was the whole point, is you know, the Messiah is the king of Israel which eventually, of course, is going to be expanded into being king of the whole world. 
but uh, I think that's a fascinating idea that Clark has. I just, I'm not going to stand on a hill and defend it to my death, but it is an interesting idea. Now, Satan here was very arrogant and tricky. Satan could not deliberately, could not tell Jesus to do anything. He could only seduce. And remember, Jesus is our example. That example applies to us. The devil cannot tell you to do anything. He can only seduce you to do something of your own free will. Here's an example, some examples. He couldn't touch Job's possessions without God's permission. He had to ask God, can I, can I go wreck him? He couldn't enter into a herd of swine. The demons could not enter into a herd of pigs, except that Christ allowed the devil to go into the herd of pigs. He had to ask permission first. So the application here to Christians is the devil didn't make you do it, as Flip Wilson used to say. The devil didn't make you do it. You did it. And I don't care how severe the temptation is. I do not care. You can resist it. Now, I know it seems awful hard. I remember one time, a brother, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but when he was younger, uh, he was single. And this woman, I, I don't know what, what was in her mind, but she basically told him, she says, I want to come over and I'm going to have sex with you. She said, I want to. This is a very unusual situation. And this brother was talking about it, and he was talking about the temptation. He says, I don't know if I can resist this. And I'm thinking to myself, oh, yes, you can resist it, and you better resist it. And he did. He was happily married for the rest of his life. But my point is, is that brother didn't think he could resist it, because it's, that's what temptation seems like sometimes. But he did. He can. And you can, too. I remember reading another story, too, about a woman who had been involved in witchcraft. She was full of every, every half the demons in Satan's kingdom. She had them. And she decided to get saved. So she's walking down the aisle in this little church to go up to the front to get saved. And she said she could hear the demon speaking to her, don't do that. Lucifer is going to destroy you. He is going to kill you. I mean, she had climbed high up into the satanic hierarchy. She openly participated in witches' contest to see who could do more demonic stuff, uh, uh, occult miracles and things like that. It's masses with Satan. I mean, all kinds of horrible stuff she got involved in. And she finally decided she wanted out. And the demons were screaming at her, and she still had enough free will left where she could walk down the aisle and say, I give my life to Christ. It's quite an amazing story. So, there's your example here. The devil has to ask Jesus for permission to do anything, and he cannot command Jesus to do anything. He can only try to seduce Jesus to do something of his own free will, and it's the same with us. Now, the devil asked Jesus to worship him. What arrogance that was. Satan is not only asking for worship from men, but he's asking for worship from the Son of God to worship him. That would have completely overthrown God off the throne of the universe. Let's look at the word give. The devil said he's going to give Jesus all those kingdoms. The parallel passage in Luke chapter 4, verse 6 says this, And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now the question is, is how can the devil give something if he doesn't own it? Or does he own it? How did the devil have any kingdoms to hand over to Jesus? Well, here are some options to answer that question. You could say, well, he didn't have the kingdoms. He was lying to Jesus. I don't think that's the proper answer. I think he actually, he is the prince of the world, at least he was, the prince of the world he was before Jesus overcame and put to shame, uh, open shame the demons that tried to kill him. How do we know that Jesus was the prince of the world at that time? 
John chapter 12, verse 31. 31. Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Will be cast out, of course, when Jesus rises from the dead and beats him. John 14:30. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming and has nothing in me. John 16:11. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged, the prince of the power of the air. I think it says in Ephesians somewhere. So yeah, he he's got the world. But you know, there's something you got to be careful with here. He doesn't. It's it's not his world. Remember that song, This Is My Father's World, that old Presbyterian hymn we used to sing when I was in the Presbyterian church? It's God's world. It's not the devil's world. The devil had temporary sway over the world, but he's not. It does, the world does not belong to him. I remember reading a great essay on the devil by Greg Bonson, who is a theonomist, and I'm not a theonomist. I don't like theonomy, but I'll tell you, this was the best Bible study on the devil I've ever seen. And the idea was, hey, the devil is defeated. Now, I know theonomy talk is a little, you know, a little bit, the devil's gotten maybe defeated a little bit more than he should be in, in the world of theonomy. I realize that, but I'm telling you, most dispensational, uh, most typical evangelical people act like the devil's running everything. And, oh, uh, just, uh, Satan's attacked me. And, oh, I, nothing I can do. And I'm whipped and I'm beaten. No, 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 no. The devil does not beat us. We beat him. We are not scared of the devil. He is scared of us. In fact, we're going to see here in the next verse, chapter 4, verse 10, Jesus says to him, Go, Satan! It's after He was weak, he was tempted, and Jesus just said, Get out of here. Who's in charge, Jesus or the devil, in the midst of this weak, of this terrible temptation? Jesus is, and Jesus is our example. We need to act like Jesus. We need to act like we're in charge of the devil when we get tempted. Let's go then to this verse 10. Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Again, once again, we note that Jesus is using Scripture in his combat with Satan. It is written. It is written. And we should do the same thing. Where was it written? Deuteronomy 6.13, You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. And, of course, what Jesus is saying is, look, if you want me to rule the worlds and you want me to worship you, then that means I'm worshiping somebody besides God. And God in Deuteronomy says, I shall worship the Lord my God, Yahweh, only, not you, devil. You don't have any right to take over the throne. It's God's throne. And then he says, go. Basically, he said, look, I've had enough. Jesus tolerated Satan enough to answer him, to give us instruction on how do you deal with the devil, now he's finished with the devil. He's had enough. And when the devil asked Jesus to bow down to him, that was going just a little bit too far. And so Jesus says, Satan, get the hell out of here. Basically, it's what he's saying. Go back to where you belong. Go back to the hell where you, where you live. This is the first time that Jesus actually used Satan's name. The first time he acknowledges knowing who the devil really was. Some people say, like Jameson Fawcett and Brown, say that Jesus that Satan was dealing with Jesus as a pretended friend and pious counselor. He does sort of sound like that. You know, are you hungry, Jesus? Oh, no, yeah, that's a way you could not be hungry anymore. Oh, hey, you're powerful, powerless and weak out here. Hey, you know, you could be very popular. You could be the king of the whole world. So he acts like he's his friend. And again, that's another example for us as Christians. Doesn't the devil act like, act like you're his friend? Oh, just take a snort of this cocaine. You'll feel so good. And then the mask comes off and you see how bad the devil is. All right, Matthew 
verse 11. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. And now the devil left, all right, but remember, Jesus said, Go, Satan. He left, not voluntarily, but under Jesus' orders. Now these angels that came, they probably came in visible human form, as in Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out during the service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? I've always been weak on angels. I don't know why. I need to know more about them. I need to be more confident in my assertion that they do look out after Christians. After all, Jesus is our example, and he was in that wilderness being ministered to by angels, not only during the 40 days when the wild beasts were there, as Mark says, but also here, after the temptation is over, the angels came and ministered to him. And ministered to him probably means they brought him food. Matthew, and that's it for the temptation of Jesus. We'll start with verse 12 in our next uh, audio. I hope you enjoyed this one.